Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, <coughs> read the paper on Sunday... March 27th. March 27th. Yeah, last, last podcast in March. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So be it. Yeah, I know. You're not a fan of March. You were... It's a little bit of a bleak month. You were negative all. yesterday about March. Negative. <laughs> um... And like a lamb this year, out like a lion. It's yeah. true. It is out like a lion. It's going to be super cold this week. Yeah, uh, just a couple of days. Then it gets warm again. Nothing to worry about. Nothing you can't handle. We'll be in April before you know it. Okay, so I want to talk really fast tonight. Yeah, because? Because we got to get back and watch the... Uh, St. Peter's game? St. Peter's game, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about it. We'll that. talk about St. Peter's, yes, too. We'll we got to cover all that. But in an interesting way, because everyone will know the results before the podcast is heard. So That's the challenge we have. In uh, making a record that will stand the test of time. Uh, we did get a letter this week. We don't get many letters because we don't give out our email at, uh, information. That's probably the reason. But in any event, <laughs> we got a letter slash email from our friend Harry Zerlin, who says, quote, listen to the last episode. Dan interrupted Tamsin when she was discussing spring peepers, a topic I'm interested in, to talk about March Madness tournament. Not so interested. Of course, it's the male peepers calling the females to mate that are making all the noise. That's why peepers outnumber shakers. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's a good point. Quote. That's a good point. We gotta. I, I gotta admit, the the peepers have completely shut up. Yes. Well, I guess it's because of the cold. Well, I don't know. I mean, we have to unpack that first of all, just so we're clear. Uh, first of all, uh, I never interrupt Tamsin. That doesn't happen. I, I, I Harry. Uh, Misread the situation. You know, I told you we're in a hurry, okay? Well, what's your point? <laughs> you interrupted me. Um, all right, maybe I do once in a while. That's a little bit of a sub-theme in the whole podcast. It's, it's the New York thing. Right, right. Okay. Peepers, Tamsin was going on. I shouldn't say going on. Tamsin was commenting in an interesting way about peepers. Peepers are, what are peepers? Like frogs or something, right? What, what are peepers? Yeah, they, we covered this last week. What is the Shakers reference that we have to throw, we have to remind people of that they get Harry's joke? It was just last week. How could they forget? Uh, it, it, well, not everyone's current. The point Religious is... Religious sect, offspring of the Quakers. Exactly. And there's not new, about reproduction. New Shakers restaurant, you said on the podcast. They didn't reproduce. There are only they three, died out. There are only three Shakers left. How can you open a restaurant for shakers when there are three shakers left? Maybe they don't want to eat out. Okay. So, so in any event, Harry uh, makes a good point. There are more peepers than shakers, and uh, that's because uh, they make all that noise. So it's the male peepers, Tamsin. Who knew? Um, thanks, Harry. The uh, we we uh, were at a memorial service yesterday, which is you know always a little sad. Um, Memorial. Uh, well, we were at a celebration of life for George Wagner. Yes. Okay. It's a better way to put it. Who? Was the husband of uh, my uh, former boss slash mentor slash friend, uh, Roberta Mayer. Mm -hmm. And uh, George was a um, professor of psychology at Rutgers University. Yes. And uh, it, it was really, it was a, a very good celebration. It was nice um, to hear uh, all his uh, uh, colleagues Mm -hmm. Talk about his academic reputation and what he contributed in terms of his field and in terms of the department at uh, Rutgers. And you heard from family, you know, how much fun he was when he was nine years old. And uh, yeah. also uh, wonderful stories from Roberta about how he would, uh, among other things, slip fake... <laughs> 
yes. fortunes into Chinese fortune cookies. That's right. They actually had examples of it. He had some great messages. Some were a little suggestive, like, I thought. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I'll have to figure out how he did that. You think he he got to the restaurant? I have no idea. Days. You'll have to ask Roberta. It's, but that's sure, pretty clever. Uh, I mean, she knows. And he was doing it from the, the onset of their relationship. It arguably... It's the first fortune cookie message that, you know, that landed, that got their relationship going. Gave a little jump start, if you will. Well, I think it was going before that. I think that just sort of sealed the deal. But anyway, these uh, kind of gatherings, uh, sort of virtual gatherings, turn out to be good things. Yeah, I mean, you know... It it was a chance. I saw some of my former colleagues, other people who had worked with Roberta and knew... Uh, George as well, and um, it, so and it was it was a moment for reflection. It was a moment for uh, actually getting to know the person better, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, you know it was very I don't know affirming experience. Yeah, no, ways. look, I agree. I, this here's what, what was particularly interesting to me. I can't, you know, you can't help but think as you listen uh, to someone's life described, and we only knew him. Through Roberta, honestly. So, you know, we had only seen a small slice of, of what he did uh, in his experience. But it was interesting to me to hear uh, what people spoke about, what they emphasized. And particularly in an academic setting, I mean, it's his own culture, it's his own community, and there are a very large crowd of people there. And a large number of them affiliated with Rutgers, uh, where he taught. Uh and it, it seemed to me that there seemed to be three categories of things one might uh, talk about there. One is uh, sort of um, how one functions in the department, and uh, and, and uh, two is you know scientific accomplishment, and three is how one deals with one's peers and one's subordinates. And in this case, um, it was the third thing that really meant something. I mean, there, there was a very little discussion about what he accomplished. It was not to say he didn't accomplish anything, but it wasn't a point of emphasis. Uh, and yeah, when the administrator gets up and says, you know, George did a great job in terms of finding space for new people, which, which he was said. And you're saying, great, not that impressive. But person after person, student after student, uh, mentee after mentee got up and said, uh, George was a great mentor. George was a great teacher. George was the word generous kept being out right, there. Generous, but generous it, for this time. Generous, generous was the, the word Gen- of the day. Helping people, helping his students, his and students, helping the next generation his of students. Right, his colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. and and that's and that's what you want to be remembered for. And it's, it's sort of you can't help but listen to that and think about how one conducted one's own life, or you like to think that. I certainly think of myself in my professional life. It's not the cases. It's you know how did you treat people? How did, how, did, how would people think of you going forward? Uh, anyway, it was it was. It reminds it, you to think about what's important. Yeah. All right. Uh, good. All right. And then we came home, and then you outdid yourself in the kitchen. Well, I just wanted to mention that I had uh, <laughs> I had been to the Giant. Yeah. Uh, the week before, and bought, you know, the commercial pack of. Uh, Corned beef brisket, you know, yes. corn, you know, with the little packet of uh, spices all ready to throw in the pot right. and boil with the cabbage right. and the carrots and onions and potatoes. Um, so I, I buy it after St. Patrick's Day. Well, you get a Day. good deal that way. That's yeah, smart it, shopping. It was on sale. Good work. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not Irish. No. So, you know, it's not a big holiday for us. <laughs> 
Um, and frankly, you're never too thrilled about the corned beef and cabbage oh, I, when I, it comes around. I wouldn't would say that. Oh, uh, yeah, I would say that. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, I was, uh, you know, Googling away. Yeah. Uh, on the laptop, yeah. Uh, to uh, you know, just double check um, recipes, mm-hmm. and uh, I came across a recipe f- for corned beef and cabbage that was not boiled, mm-hmm. but was roasted. Yeah, the corned beef and then the vegetables. Yeah, and I decided to do it that way, and it was spectacular. You have to say, wouldn't you say it was spectacular? It's, well, I would have to say it, yes. Uh, but yes, it was great. It was good. It was excellent. And uh, you were beside yourself. I was beside myself, yes. And the, the, the only reason I mention it is it was from a uh, website called Damn Delicious. Oh, yeah? And the woman who runs the, the website yeah. is Chunga Ri mm-hmm. of a Korean descent, Korean mm-hmm. family, grew up in Queens. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, I thought, a brilliant idea. And, I, I, you know, she I looked at some of her other recipes. I'd never used this website before. It just It came up, and I was intrigued because mm-hmm. it wasn't boiling. And uh, it seems to me sometimes you boil things, you take all the flavor out of them. Uh, so uh, it was great. I then looked at, after... I made it, yeah. which is not the right way to do it. I looked at the reviews, yeah. mm-hmm. and the reviews were spectacular, and they were all recent. So well, she just posted it this, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, and I happened to oh, find it. Oh, she just it. posted it. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, all, sounds like usually enough. I'm the last one to the party, oh, but I, uh, I think from now on, this is how I will... Do the corned beef. It sounds like it's another woman who gets her corned beef on sale. Uh, anyway, thank you, Chunga. I'm going to have to but, try some of your other it ideas. It does remind me. You seem to have uh, a clue. Of the story Roberta told about George, about how nice he was, and yet it was important to him to be honest in terms of his criticism about how she made one somewhat, some creative vet, vegetarian meal for well, him. Well, his favorite foods were bread and pizza. Right. But she would try to entice him into... Vegetables. Yes. And, and she made a, an elaborate, fabulous meal around some eggplant or something. Right. And he agreed that it was wonderful. And Hester, please never make it again. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's the right way. Uh, all right. So let's get to St. Peter's because you obviously cannot concentrate. I'm on the move here. You can't concentrate on here. anything else. So, look, again, by the time this podcast is heard, folks will know whether St. Peter's won the game and will take them to the Final Four. I think that's very unlikely that they beat North Carolina, but, you know, they've won a couple games already, or three to be precise, and they were underdogs each time. But there are a couple, there's a story about them every day. Two stories in particular was interesting. One in the journal about how they were helped, according to their coach, Shaheen Halloway, they were helped by the by the COVID uh, break, if you will. They had, uh, because of the number of people who were infected with COVID on the team, of all the teams in the tournament, they had the longest COVID break. For 27 days, they didn't play a game. And according to Holloway, the coach, that helped them. Uh, and it really, it comes down to this. By not playing a game for 27 days, he was able to practice. He was able to practice for the players who could play. 
um, and one available uh, during that period. And they worked on defense and they worked on individual skills. Uh, and frankly, when you're playing a, a regular busy schedule as a collegiate team does, as a matter of course, you don't have a chance to do that kind of coaching. You certainly don't have a chance to work, to work on individual skills. And what happened and as a result of, of that, I believe, they did turn the season around. The guy had gotten off previous that to a terrible start. But once he was able to work with people individually and they were concentrating on what they wanted to do for the rest of the season and had almost a month to do it, they really had the chance to turn their program around. So, you know, maybe it is coaching. And well, maybe I know you guys, break. you coaches love practice. I, listen, I, I like practice better yeah. than the games. And, and, I, the coach and, and on, I think more uh, the coach from Miami, yeah, the one he, who made the comments right. about uh, Charles Barkley and yeah. his, you know, potential shirtlessness. Yeah. Um, he was saying he loves practice. Right. That's his favorite thing in the world. Uh, yeah. Laranaga, the guy who's the coach at Miami. Uh, yeah, that's where... Something happens, that's where you have the chance to really communicate with your players. You see their progress. You have a chance to let them improve. The games are the games. But uh, they really benefited from that. The other thing about uh, St. Peter's, the money. It always comes down to the money. So what is this doing for the St. Peter's program? St. Peter's total budget uh, for basketball is $250,000, excluding coaches' salaries. Right. right? Um, Now... um, that is by far the lowest figure in the MAC in the conference, the basketball conference that they are in. They don't spend very much at all. As a result of um, the tournament, the NCAA is going to award uh, six million dollars because they won as many games as they won, and more, frankly, if they keep winning. But the six million dollars doesn't go to them; it goes to the conference. Right, yeah. and the conference uh, tends to uh, split it up evenly among all the teams. And already, the St. Peter's uh, um, director of uh, athletics uh, is sort of Rochelle Paul is on record saying that she doesn't think that's right. She says we're the one winning the basketball games; we should get a greater share of this. And they need the money. They say they have only uh, four people. Uh, they, they have four people on their staff who don't get paid anything. They rely on volunteers for coaching. You know, she's always going over the budget for travel, for hotel stays. She says it's a real, uh, you know, tough program I, to I finance. I hope they get a bigger share because they've really done something here. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, as for coaches' salaries, Shaheen Halloway, their coach, does make $266,000 a year, which in the basketball world uh, is nothing. Uh, next year, he should be the coach of Seton Hall, everyone says, in which case he will be making 10 times that. So uh, it, it's, it's, uh, the money is transformative. Let's but see I if they thought get you their said their on. budget was 250000 uh, Except excluding coaches' salaries okay. is what I said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way they measure the budget. Uh, yeah, and you know what they end up relying on? And you're familiar with this. They end up relying on raising money mm-hmm. outside of uh, school resources. And we've seen that when the kids playing water polo. Oh, every, in college. Everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah, everybody does that. But you know, you know. at Princeton, the um, some of the sports, some of the men's sports yeah. are completely funded. But those are usually are non-revenue sports. So yeah. when you're playing against competition here, that's big time and big revenue producing. They don't have to rely on that. They they have plenty of funds. If you're in a small school like St. Peter's, is there such a thing as a revenue producing sport? Uh, apparently not. 
because it's the biggest <laughs> yeah, sport no, they've got. Not. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's move on to another sport, and that is the rising sport of disc golf. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm just a little bit interested in this because our neighbors, yeah. the Zerflus, have a disc golf course. That's right. Okay, and it was really funny. Um, recently, somebody was over and they were saying, what is that weird metal thing in the back of your yard? And I said, oh, that's one of those disc golf thingamabobs uh, that uh, is used by our neighbors. Um, well, well, you know you live in the, the exurbs if, if your neighbor, if your next door neighbor has a disc golf course, but that's what we've got. Yes, well, we're, we're fortunate in that regard. So anyway, um, a big article in the... Um, Wall Street Journal, okay, apparently disc golf is growing, you know, uh, during since the pandemic is like growing faster than pickleball. Well, that's debated, but yes, <laughs> you know, comparably. Um, uh, well, you know, the, it, it's got a ways to go. But uh, anyway, uh, it's, the article starts off with uh, a uh, recollection of a fabulous shot on June 26th. Um, 2021 by James Conrad. He launched a disc uh, arcing 247 feet into the basket on his way to becoming um, the, you know, winning the world championships. He beat the five time winner uh, at that time. What, yeah. what, what year was that? I think the 2021. Oh, really? Okay. June. Okay. Like just recently. Just recently. Okay. okay. So disc golf um, in case you want to know, is played with frisbee type things, right? Wait, but yeah, they're but slightly the discs themselves are slightly different. Yeah, I didn't know okay? that. I didn't know they're, that. They're sort of uh, sharper and uh, they're, they're angular and yeah. more dense, yeah, so happy, they fly right. better. All okay. right. So it is a uh, sport that involves uh, you know these basket things, yeah. and uh, you have to throw. The disc into the basket. Like the it's, peace it, basket in early basketball, basically. It, well, sort of. Originally, it goes back to the early days of uh, making the Frisbee. And yeah. when the Frisbees first came around, people would have little contests trying to hit utility poles, oh, telephone poles. Is that poles. what people did? Yes. <laughs> and uh, the, um, the, the basket thing was invented... By Steady Ed Hedrick, who began the whole frisbee thing, yeah, um, Ed, yeah. so that you, to uh, you know, so that you could, to um, I guess, dispel all the arguments about did it really hit the pole or not? Yes, you know, um, so that so you hit it into the basket, et cetera, and so forth. And it's it's um, you know it's like golf. You go from station to station. There are eighteen uh, baskets or um, holes, whatever you want to call them. All right, so um, so the problem is now. So anyway, um, this guy Conrad makes this fabulous shot, and he makes it with okay the um, a yellow and blue electron Envy disc made by MVP Disc Sports. Mm-hmm. So now everybody's got to have one. Really, all the disc. Everybody was all the disc tremendous yeah. demand. And okay, uh, and uh, the MVP company, who is this guy's sponsor, can't make enough. Okay, they, they can't, can't make enough. They, right. Part of the reason is they're, they're they they do not have enough machines. They can't get enough polyurethane. Polyurethane is highly in demand, really? uh, not just for you know making the frisbee things, but also uh, for uh, making um, you know. 
various medical supplies that have to do with the pandemic. Um, the baskets were not available. Those were getting stuck in, um, you know, the shipping delays and so on. Um, so it's they're going through this huge crisis of trying of being able to supply the equipment. They're missing the missing yeah. their moment. They're missing their moment. So the um, the guys who own uh, MVP Sports, Brad Richardson and his brother Chad, yeah, who started the company two thousand ten, yeah, when they were undergraduates. Yeah. Okay, uh, were saying, "Oh crap, we are screwed." And in fact, they were sort of screwed because everybody wanted that particular disc. Yeah. And by the time they were able to make enough of them, and they sold a lot of them, they sold. Uh, like 50,000 of them, but there are even more mm-hmm. on the shelves. The, the oh, moment the had passed. But the cool thing is before, while they were in such great demand and they couldn't get them out yeah. fast enough, uh, they were going, uh, I guess, on uh, eBay sites and so on for like $50 really? each. And, and usually, you know, they retail around 20 mm-hmm. Now, because of the popularity, the popularity of disc golf has uh, increased with... The pandemic, mm-hmm. because it's a game you play outside. It's kind of got an easy entry. A wide variety of people can play it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, you're pretty. You're automatically, you know, um, distant, safe distance mm-hmm. from people while you're playing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it got very popular uh, during all the other shutdowns. You couldn't go to gyms. Couldn't do a lot of other stuff. Um, so that. Uh, um, what was I going to say about that? Um, I don't know. Uh, the, um, you know, more and more, there was more and more demand in general, not just because of this one exciting moment. And so uh, the benefit of this is companies like MVP are, you know, raking in the bucks to some extent. They are reinvesting into more of these machines that make the discs um, they're not too nimble with making the discs, yeah. discs because because you want them to be precisely uniform. They keep you know making one style of disc and then switch. They can't. They're not going to switch back and forth and back and forth. Um, well, yeah, uh, between different uh, styles. So anyway, so it's kind of exciting. It's interesting the way they're developing the business. Yeah. They're kind of in some ways. They were looking towards the craft beer um, industry for inspiration in terms of marketing. You know how to uh, create interest, yeah. uh, create uh, roll out specialty models, etc., and so forth. Some other interesting things about it is there are professional um, disc golf players. Yeah, sure. Okay, so there are companies MVP. Um, you know, sponsors this guy Conrad. the The big guy is Macbeth. All right, I'm not seeing this. Uh, well, that's, first that's okay. Paul Macbeth, 31 year old from Huntington Beach. Yeah. All right. Even though he lost to the guy making the great shot. Yeah. All right. He, in the end, benefits because his company, Discraft, signed him to a new 10 year, 10 million dollar contract. Well, that's a little hard to believe. Okay. I hope Whereas most of the pros yeah. make about twenty thousand dollars a I hope, year. I hope that's guaranteed. It's, it's, um, it is, so uh, you know, it's uh, it's look, you know, kind the, of fun and uh, exciting and interesting. The, the um, you remember Ultimate Frisbee, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we've always heard about it. It's like somewhere between soccer and and whatever. And that apparently has waned in interest. Like people kind of grew out of that. Yeah, they can't run and around they, anymore. And they aged out. Yeah, they aged out. Uh, so so that this disco it's like people go is from, really um, taking hold. Of young people, people play soccer. Older people play golf. I mean, the interesting thing is to me is you got to see if you can find a a course. A disc golf course, but if you get on the internet, yeah, you'll there, find one. There we, are there are more and more, yeah. and it's really cute uh, reading about these young guys with the MVP company yeah. and talking about all of our resources are in those machines. Yeah. Well, he said, "It's always on your mind." <laughs> you can just kind of imagine. Well, they're make or break. I mean, yeah, yeah. And you might find if you get on the internet, there's a disc golf. Uh, course like uh, within a couple of miles of your house or in our case uh, next door you, you see them in funny places sometimes you're in a public park yeah. and you see those cages well it doesn't and, take uh, much to make a disc golf course you just got to put the well that's the beauty up. of it yeah, right. yeah you don't have to make sand traps or anything like that you don't need hills or valleys it's, uh, it's just a place to walk around alright Good, Tams, and that's, uh, I, you know, it's too bad your birthday is just behind us because that would have been the ideal gift for you. Uh, I'll think about you it. You think you could do that? You think you would be good at disco? Do I think I would be good at it? Yeah. I think I would be good at anything. I mean, oh, okay. that's, that's just the way I am, Tams. It's, <laughs> it's nothing to do with disc golf. Really? Yeah. Uh, how about you? you Breaking interested? news. Yeah. <laughs> you interested in getting involved in disc golf? No clue. I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not. I don't think good. it would be. Targets are not my best thing. Wouldn't be tough on your knees. How's that? There's that going. For I don't know. Um, all right. So the Oscars are tonight. Uh, you know, and uh, I think we're all over the Oscars, right? All over, all over meaning not all over interested, but uh, we're kind of, it's all over for us. I, I'm not that excited about it. I don't think you're Dude, we're not excited because we haven't seen the damn movies. Well, it's just, right? I don't know. I'm just we telling you how I feel. Movies. I don't have to justify it. You just got to buckle down and watch a movie. All right. So a couple interesting articles about I the I did Oscars see an article about are movies over. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Is this the end of the movies by Ross Dutak? And uh, an op-ed piece in the time, strangely enough. It might but, be. Who could sit still that long? Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not Pepper. Uh, it's he, one thing when we go out for yeah. an evening. It's another thing to sit down and say, okay, now, you know, we're buying into this. Well, two and a half hours. It's not even, two and a half hours. Even though we have restroom facilities and it's, snacks it's not that. readily available. It's not two and a half hours because it's the oppressive coming attractions, honestly, which is another thing Dutat talks about, that they ought to get rid of that. But quite apart from that, what, what he's focusing on mostly in this article is 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 movies and the Oscars. People keep saying that the Oscar ceremony is 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 not good and not interesting, but it's because people don't feel the same way about movies. And he has sort of a semi interesting analysis. He says, "Look, here's the it used to be that the Oscars were focused on a certain kind of movie that was being made on a regular basis and that people would go to. And what kind of movie is that? The ideal Oscar nominee, Dutat points out." is a high-slash-middle-brow movie aspiring to real artistry and sometimes achieving it that's made to be watched on the big screen with famous stars, vivid cinematography, and a memorable score. It's neither a difficult film for the arthouse crowd nor a comic book blockbuster, but a film for the largest possible audience of serious adults. And I think that's fair. I mean, that's not aspirational. He's just saying historically, that's the kind of movie. Right. And he talks about Titanic yeah. and Saving Private Ryan and Shakespeare and Love. They all fit that definition. So when he looks at at the at the movies this this year, 
okay, that are nominated, uh, he identifies several movies that fit that category. And I think he does this right. West Side Story is that kind of film, and it was as it was in the 50s. King Richard, uh, Dune, and Don't Look Up. In his view, they all fit that model. So you might think that people would be excited about those films to some degree. And the answer is yes and no. And, and this takes me to a different article uh, by the Wall, in the Wall Street Journal, not the Times, in which they did a very interesting analysis. They said, yeah, sure, there are some movies that fit the normal category of you know, Oscar worthiness and then they'd attract a certain interest. But number one, we have to recognize that uh, the popularity of films is very limited. What do they mean by that? Uh, if I would ask you, uh, there are 10 pictures nominated for Best Picture for the Oscars. How many of those do you think are in the top 10 grossing films of the year? What, what would be your guess? I have no idea. Okay, zero. Okay. None of them are in the top 10 grossing So that's films. not what people are watching or right. going to. Right, That's not what people are going to. It's completely out of it, right? That's uh, number one. Uh, but then they did a very interesting uh, survey, and it's hard. it would take me ten minutes to describe the methodology. It's kind of crazy. No, the, the don't. And I, and I okay, I'm not going to. What what did the survey say? It said this. All right, it said several things. I'm just going to give you the highlights. Number one of the nominees. All right, the highest quality low enjoyment nominee is Power of the Dog. In other words, based on their conversations with people, that's the movie people said, you know, I think that's, there's a lot going for that movie. It's just not for me. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. Number, what else? Number two, uh, the movie that most, uh, that Oscar watchers think should win. Okay. And this is going to surprise you. All right. Because all the experts are saying it's going to be Power of the Dog or possibly Coda. Uh, according to the survey, the movie Oscar watchers think should win um, West Side Story or King Richard, which jives with what the Times said is what fits a normal Oscar movie. Uh, that's what they think should win. The movie that Oscar watchers think will win, again, West Side Story and King Richard. It's a very strong hold, this idea of what an Oscar movie is, right? The most popular Best Picture nominee overall in terms of people commenting on it and being interested and drawn in on it is actually Doom according to the survey, okay. which is not something we would necessarily expect. Um, and uh, the most watched movie, according to the polling data, by either sitting in the theater or streaming, is Don't Look Up. I don't even believe that. Uh, you didn't want to hear the methodology. Right. Uh, so there you go. I Actually, you know, in retrospect... I've warmed to Don't Look Up. I think it was a pretty good movie. I know you don't like it. No, but I, I'm... I, it's not that I have a problem believing that people went to a movie I didn't like that much. Yeah. I, I just... I don't even hear that much about it. Like well, there, it's a movie mostly, that people are going to. It's not going to. It's mostly streaming for Don't oh, Look okay. Up. It's mostly streaming. But that's the movie that people have seen. And right. they saw it all streaming. Okay. Because they went to streaming almost right away. Yeah, I think uh, maybe the Oscars is just uh, a done deal. Yeah, it could be that the, the, the yeah. It just doesn't suit the well, industry the, as it exists now. Exactly, it doesn't suit suit our culture. Right, as it exists that, that's exactly right. And and what look in, in Dutat's article, he said, you know, it is interesting because the culture has changed so much. It used to be people were engaged by the Oscars because everyone would see a lot of these movies, they would debate these movies, and 
they would relate to them in a serious, substantial way. And that's just no longer the case. Uh, he ends up making a case for since the days are behind us, as you just observed, for movies in a sense, um, he's advocating that people study them in college, that the best movies or, the, or, or at least people ought to understand that uh, movies tell us a lot about culture as time goes by and, and there right, should right. be some historical the, films. The other it. thing about the Oscars is I yeah. think people used to enjoy watching, you know, you turn on the Oscars, you see the movie stars, right. you see the fabulous gowns, right. et cetera, and so forth. Um, the way the way we have media today, we see movie stars all the time. That's right. You know? And a lot and, of it, uh, a lot of it is because they're television stars, too. Yeah. So, um, and it, you remember not, what it used to be? The award, the idea of the award ceremony is just not what... Do you remember it used to be that a movie star would never appear on television? And God forbid it would never be in a television show? Because they were movie stars. Right. That was different. Right. That's no longer the case. No. All right. You had something uh, a little artsy, a little museum update. A little museum update. Okay. So a couple of things on museum update. One is that uh, today I attended a Zoom lecture from uh, Princeton University, from the Princeton University Friends of the Library. Mm -hmm. And it was about, you know, my favorite librarian, Bella DaCosta Green, who was uh, the African-American librarian who, uh, you know, um, was uh, worked for J.P. Morgan starting in 1905, but Mm -hmm. spent her life passing as white. But anyway, she was a fascinating character. And a young woman, Daria Rose Fawner, um, who graduated from Princeton in uh, 2011, gave a super-duper lecture uh, on her and has done some uh, terrific research and uh, was... Very, um, she was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I just bring this up because I, you know, so often I attend these lectures and they're dismal. Well, uh, that, uh, that's in the past. She was terrific. Yeah, right? So she's yeah. like Zeke's age. Uh-huh. And, oh, really? uh, she's terrific. She's clearly a great scholar. Mm-hmm. And, um, she has done some new research, um, interesting things, uh, that I hadn't read about, uh, uh, Bell before. Mm-hmm. And so that was a triumph. She says there's going to be a big exhibition at the Morgan uh, in 2024. And so uh, I think all, all this information is going to even snowball. Um, so you know that there was that uh, there's a lot of interest in the concept of passing this year because of the movie, um, because that uh, based on Nella Larson's uh, 1920s right. novel mm-hmm. about passing. And, and she was speculating she... She um, she really she can't find any proof, but she's speculating that uh, Bell de Green Bell de Costa Green um, was acquainted with Nella Larson. Okay. Um, partially because one of the meetings of the characters is in a hotel called the Morgan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Green worked for the Morgan. Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. So anyway, so that was fun, and it was great to see a young, uh, interested, enthusiastic, and uh, clearly uh, uh, brilliant scholar um, uh, on the Zoom. Uh, Also in the uh, Wall Street Journal, in the Masterpiece section, uh, there was a discussion of a, a set of murals done by Thomas Hart Benton for the Whitney in 1932. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is 
called the arts of life in America. Okay. Not the arts of America, not life in America, but the arts of life in America. And uh, he was commissioned to do this series uh, in the 30s, in 1932, by 1949, the Whitney is tired of it. I guess it's passe. His style of painting, the regionalism, is passe. People are, you know, into uh, the, um, what you call it? Uh, why am I drawing a blank here? Um, they're more interested in, uh, all right, well, let me just move on. Um Anyway, they sell this series of murals to the uh, museum in New Britain mm-hmm. and New Britain, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this article is just uh, embracing uh, these characters, embracing the colors, um, embracing uh, the um, subject matter. There are four panels, arts of the South, arts of the city, arts of the West, and Indian arts. And they have these fantastic, colorful uh, characters. It's in tempera on linen and uh, colors inspired, uh, you know, the writer. Uh, in tempera Willard. on linen? Tempera on linen. Really? Okay. Well, why is that weird? I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but all right. It's just, you know, okay. cloth. Right. Tempera is egg yeah, paint, okay. no, right? It's, it's the linen. Okay. No, it's... well, I mean, you're used to frescoes. Let's yeah. face it. Yeah. You love a true fresco yeah, it's, where it's, the paint you know, is embedded wall. into right. the wall. Right. Okay. This is much handier right. in the 20th century because if you're like the Whitney and you want to sell it, you can move it somewhere else and, okay. and sell right. it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, inspired by Rubens, the figures are, you know, you can see have these long um, limbs uh, reminiscent of El Greco oh, right. and uh, the that's, Italian manners. That's the way he paints. That's the way yeah. Tom's heart Benton paints, right? With long uh, right, but, but those are his inspirations. That's yeah, where so he gets, he had studied in Europe, yeah. okay? So he's seen the great frescoes and right. murals of Europe and all this work. He was also inspired by Diego Rivera and his murals, oh. you know, during Mr. the Mr. Mural. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Mural. Right. Okay, but it's not like Rivera invented that. He had studied in Italy yeah. and uh, was, uh, you know, taken with those monumental uh, Renaissance murals, etc. And this, you know, it's uh, so you have these great characters of, uh, you know, the 20s and 30s, um, you know, uh, the arts of the West, they're roping uh, um, horses, playing cards, playing the fiddle, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, he does bring up that um, uh, there's a harmonic harmonica playing character in blue overalls in one corner and uh, the model for that thomas hart benton's assistant you know the guy who mixes the paints okay who happened to be jackson pollock oh you gotta slip that in at the end huh? uh, okay um so anyway it's it, it's a fun set of murals if you're in connecticut if you're in new britain you should go see it but it also reminded me of another commission that benton had um america today that's in the Met. Yeah. Okay. So that had been commissioned in the uh, 30s yeah. for the New School of Social Research. Mm-hmm. You know, Benton was all, you know, he was 
the cat's pajamas. Yeah. Okay. During the early thirties, he was on well, the cover like, yeah. of Time magazine well, in nineteen thirty-four. Feels like but w- by the time Jackson Pollock comes along, this feels like you know, WPA type stuff, which is like, very like, much so. Yeah. But when he, for that commission, yeah, uh, for the New School Commission, yeah, um, he didn't even get paid. Well, that sounds like WPA he just got also. reimbursed for his materials. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But it does it does bring him some uh, you know. Uh, fame and li- and later. Well, guess, so the, I'll fortune. just tell you. What, but uh, let me just say this: yeah. that was in the new school. At yeah. a certain point, they're done with it. They yeah. want to get rid of it. Yeah. They sell it to AXA, Equitable yeah. Life Insurance. Yeah. Okay. Who 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 was the uh, head of art uh, of the? Um, not Perry. Who? Perry. Really? Perry Stave. Okay. When they so, bought it. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. It was, not okay. when they first bought it, probably. Okay. But later, I I I don't know the the numbers. Anyway. Um. Perry will go on to work at the Met yeah. when AXA is ready to get rid of this mural oh. because um, the owners of the building want it out of the uh, lobby where it's currently installed. Yeah, I know the building. Uh, Perry helps negotiate this deal where AXA is that true? gives it to the Met. Really? Yes. Okay. Perry now has been working at the Met for eight years. She is about to move to Iceland. Oh, and, and we learned this where? At the memorial service yes, for George yes. Wagner okay. yesterday, we so talked to her mother. Stave, yes. Good luck, Perry. Yeah. Um, always. Uh, well, you brought us showing full me the interesting things. I was going to ask you whether I don't think we have time, but I'll just say it, it, it strikes me highly unusual that the guy mixing the paint for the great master turns out to become a, a renowned artist years later. Unless you tell me this well, happens all the time. Ben was a teacher. Ben, it, it, it wasn't okay. I all mean, right, everybody good. knows. Everybody knows that uh, um, Pollock starts out with the. Uh, Benson. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, his early paintings look very Benson-esque. I'll show you. Okay. All right, later, afterward. All right, so just to wrap it up. First of all, one thing I forgot to mention. When we just, I just mentioned West Side Story, and I came across this by accident. I thought it was interesting. Maybe you will, too. They had a little blurb on George Shakira. So you may remember won an Oscar for West Side Story in the late 50s. He played Bernardo, great dancer, right? Yeah. Well, the interview, which was recently... Tells a funny story, which said that um, he had first become involved with West Side Story in the London production, which took place before the movie, and he played Riff, the leader of the Jets. And then when he came to audition for the movie, Jerome Robbins said, no, I think you're a Bernardo. And he played Bernardo. So he played both sides. Oh, okay. Of the war, which is kind of difficult because it's, it's a little bit uh, based on ethnicity. And, of course, Jakiris was Greek, so I guess he gets to play whoever he wants. I can see you're fascinated as I was I'm by fascinated. That. Um, all right. So, finally, there was a cute story about Jerry Zaks. Jerry Zaks is a very well-known director of Broadway plays, a million Broadway musicals. I couldn't mention them all. Most recently, uh, The Music Man, um, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, Six Degrees of Separation, Hello, Dolly, blah, 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 blah. So, it's in the real estate section, so they're talking about his apartment, and they noticed that... One of the, the most prominent things in the apartment is a photograph of uh, Jerry Zaks as a young man with Zero Mostel and some older people, who it turns out to be uh, Jerry Zaks' parents. And they said, then what's the story with this? And this is like the most prominent thing. You can imagine all the memorabilia he has. He says, well, the story was this. He says, I, Jerry Zaks, got into the theater as an actor, as many people do before I came a director. And I was playing a Muttle, uh, the tailor, in what he describes a 10th theater summer tour 
of Fiddler on the Roof, which sounds to me like the Westbury Music Fair, honestly. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that production, Jerome Mastel was playing Tevye, of course. And uh, he said that his parents were, were, well, they were Holocaust cause survivors. And they were very disappointed to learn that he wanted to be an actor and he was starting to act. They said, this is not, you know, the world is not really gracious to actors, whatever. And, uh, but after that performance, they were there, let's call it Westbury. They went to see their son in action. Afterward, they went back, they went backstage and he introduced them to, to Zero Mostel. And this is uh, Jerry Zach speaking. He said, for 20 minutes, they spoke Yiddish to Zero, tumbling back and forth, recall. And finally, my father asked, is my son going to be all right in this fakakta business? And Zero answered, he's going to be more than all right. And then we took the picture. So, <laughs> Nice story. All right. Back to the NCAAs. Yes, I finished in time for uh, St. Peter's. Okay. All right, so this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. And we'll see you again next week with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper.